Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Disposable Cities, Part 4 of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat. Once again, we open with the series theme, Up Against the Wall, by Group Home. When Rasul Moat first shared his work on this book with me, I immediately thought of it as the Book of Interchange. Of course, this is no surprise, as we are after the same quarry, that entity or ideology that has us bound to structures and systems that bleed the life right out of us for the sake of a very small number of people. It's called property, or capitalism, patriarchy, or misogyny, monarchy, or democracy, white supremacy, or religion, militarism, or industrialism, individualism, or liberalism, and so on. And we've done show after show on these topics. But here we are, finally, and perhaps conclusively. It turns out that all these particular control systems devised by humans can be subsumed under the state. And to paraphrase a 12th century philosopher, the state is an infinite sphere, the center of which is everywhere, the circumference nowhere. In these four episodes of The State Made Visible, the center is in the city. Mowat tells us that the modern city's schema combines the empty city freed of indigeneity, the closed city of restricted access, the colonial city with planned congregations of the racial other, the imperial city renovated with racial and gendered city splitting, the stateless beyond city of the rural and hood abandonment, the dead city that is prison, the revanchist city of gentrification, and the possibilities of the old walled fortress city and the new selective private city. All of these combine to yield the eventual production of the apartheid city of confinement and restrictive order. The city is a device that extracts labor and resources while also dispossessing the people who provide that labor. The city is an artificial product, but it is also a powerful instrument that facilitates extractive processes. The city primarily serves the state, an entity created and nurtured by the elite in order to maintain their status, class, and most importantly, their accumulated wealth. In this final episode, we'll focus our attention on the disposability of populations. Of course, this is a constant throughout this tour of the city in history. Our centerpiece is the partial meltdown of Detroit Edison's Fermi-1 nuclear plant on October 5, 1966. Fermi-1 was permanently shut down in 1972, but its successor, Fermi-2, went online in 1988, and it is still operating. Does the location of this nuclear power plant reveal Detroit as a disposable city, full of disposable people, easily sacrificed? We begin with the construction of acceptable violence by police and vigilantes, protecting property and the family, while making the home the most dangerous place to be. And now, Disposable Cities, part four of The State Made Visible, with Rasul Mowat on Interchange on WFHB. I don't know if we talked about it in the past, but I'll briefly mention the uh, very clear 
racial covenants that you know are developed uh, again as a tool you know 1910 Baltimore and 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 to me the presence of Minneapolis in the book and I had no idea of its own long past you know racial responses um, to have and it's very explicit obviously the the particular yeah. codes even making these illegal it didn't make it different it, like it created these right. it created a different kind of way right. in yeah. which these things were made worse because they were encoded into other kinds of correct practices banking law etc you know can you get loans yeah. you know that kind of stuff so again it's not just this racist town or these racist people in these towns, right? This isn't just because these are racist Baltimoreans or whatever, yeah, right. yeah, or yeah. racist people from Minneapolis, right? That these these structures are for that, you know, and that when we come to George Floyd and the murder on the street, these are these are encoded in many ways, right? They're, I mean, they're going to happen. Right. The, the police would, have, would not have been there um, or responsive to calls of that area if that area was not designated as a location to clean up for, murder at will zone. So so for yeah, yeah. So, so for you know for future development, we need to begin to clean up that area. And so there's a higher priority to respond to nine one one calls, right? right? And and then when you go, there's a you know increased assumption to inflict whatever degree of brutality as much as possible because um, that's been de determined. And, and again, the important point is this is not, you know, determined by the officer. Right. You know, this is a uh, decree by a mayor and a city council, you know, because even the commissioner themselves are not the ones that are designing a city. Commissioner is not determining when a stadium needs to be constructed or a new housing development. So it's it's the city government that's determining that. And then they have to create the mechanisms to make that property valuable or invaluable. They have to, you know, figure out ways to um, ensure that the right people want to be there and the wrong people will not be there. Right. Divi divesting property of value is, you know, just another tactic, right? And it's, Lower it's property again, values. one of the most insidious awful things right like why is my property value going down yeah right because we're going we're going to be flipping right. this this area right. so yeah. it's natural you know so allow the crime you know crime is a uh, faster way to get property values to crash and so um, allow crime to flourish right. some people will leave in a hurry and sell their property and other people will take their time and but the in that meantime the property values continue to get lower and lower right. and then once it gets so low and the city the rest of the public of the city are, are fed up and they're calling for greater actions. Now you have the approval to go in with more force. Yeah, you got a mandate. Yeah. So yeah. then you can go back to doing slum clearance. Right, right, right. Uh, so two things there uh, with the George Floyd and Minneapolis. But one, when you said, you know, the cops don't, you know, the cops aren't the authoritarian in charge. Mm -hmm. um, so cop isn't generally the problem. I mean, cop is a problem, but it's not the cop that's doing this, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's also do that because, you you know, we got this whole reform thing that still continues to have, although I don't hear a lot about it anymore. I mean, that's come and gone also, as it right. usually does. Yeah. But, you know, reform is a misnomer always. I mean, oh, it's not a misnomer. You reform the same thing, <laughs> right. generally. Right. Uh, so, you know, you're not That's gonna... why it's called reform, right? <laughs> exactly. But even though people try to make it out to be something like, did you just say reform? Yeah. Right. So and If you can say that slower, you may have an answer for yourself. Re-hyphen, yeah. re-dash-form. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Reform is the way. Really? Uh, oh, why don't man. we just, like, right. wait, not waste our time and just yeah. not do it? Yeah. <laughs> like, no. 
know that's the truth, right? But so, so, so you know, cop isn't the problem, and yeah, and yeah. you know, cop Absolutely. is a problem of the state. The state makes the cop do or what it does. So yeah, policing is not the police officer, right? Oh yeah, yeah thank you. That's my, what I meant to go to was right. the it's yeah. policing, not the cop, right? right. You know, and I, I mean that's I can't take that you know as me, right? right. You know, sure. um, one of your you know I know this has been an ongoing. Thing sure. with this uh, series of talking about this book yep. to look at past episodes yeah, sure. of the interchange, yeah. and of course, my colleague Nicole Siegel right. and her work, violence work, is profound in that making that argument, you know, and the sort of implication of the argument, meaning that the only function of policing is violence, right. um, inflicting violence, and. And again, I, Nicole makes that same particular point. It's not about the officer right. um, at all. Uh, they're the ones that are operating at the behest of something else. So the policing is happening elsewhere. Right. That's just the sort of articulation of the policing is right. the officer or the gun or the whatever other tool that's deployed. And so I try to bring that back up. But also, McCole is inspired by another piece of work that I also draw attention to, which is Stuart Hall and um, the group of graduate students that worked with him on the incredible book, Police in the Crisis, right. where, you know, from a UK perspective, sort of initiating what's that policing that's happening before the officer. There is this whole entire mechanism that's in place to... The crisis comes first. That's right. right? <laughs> you, you, know, you have to create that moral right. panic. Right. You have right. to cultivate that moral panic then to call for the officer to be created, much less the officer to then right. um, enact the function. But before that, you have to have a, a class of people who um, want something, right. right? We want this property. Right. Uh, so let's figure out some way mm -hmm. to now draw attention to some concerns about people who could um, lower the value of that property that we want. Right. Uh, so let, let, let's come up with a scare. Yeah. Uh, muggers, you know, like there's a wave of mugging that are hap is happening. Mm, you know, right, right, they're right. taking all these old la ladies' purses. Right. And uh, look at this one particular case. Um, of this person. Oh, he's wearing dreadlocks. Oh, my goodness. Right. And so you have the image of this one person who is representative of whatever the thousand muggers um, that could be looking all other types of ways. And they become the representation of uh, the mugging and the need to get rid of the mugging. Thank you very much. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part four of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on disposable populations, evidenced in Minneapolis and Detroit, but will end in Spanish Town, Jamaica, and a society formed by common people to bring dignity to the dead. The blues has grown up and the country has not. The country has been ripped off, ripped off like the Indians. Ripped off like jazz. So one, let me, I'm going to go with the crisis still, and then I'm going to come back to cop isn't the problem. So there is a, a, a study cited in here about women um, mm. who were, and this is like, this is in the um, 80s maybe, or yeah. like, and 80s is the right time for all these crises in a lot of ways, right? Because that's when crime shoots through the roof again because it's being created. Right. The study was like asked women where they where they feel less safe or where they what's the danger to women right and they almost uh, like the huge percentage of them were like you know in dark places or you know in the street or you know at night uh, you know and and the reality is that their most their danger comes in the home 
Always. That was 1980, and that, and we, right. we, studies still right. sort of indicate the right. the greatest chance. So for why violence. why is that? Why is the home safe but isn't? Yeah. And the street is unsafe but isn't. Right. 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 Yeah. So yeah. Why, what's the twist there? Why 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 does the state want the home to be safe and violent? While the street is unsafe, mm. but really not violent. Well, I mean, good, it can be violent. Yeah, right? I think that's a good question. I mean, I, I may get to some things we did not get to before, which is this notion of understanding patriarchy in a mm. particular way. Mm-hmm. So not understanding uh, gendering, but understanding patriarchy. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. So, you know, pulling from, of course, you know, Friedrich Engels, you know, right. uh, Friedrich Engels' old, old, old study origin of the family. Mm-hmm. But then other, you know, people in a more contemporary, like uh, Sylvia Federici, mm-hmm. in terms of Caliban the Witch, and also, uh, I forgot her first name, but Aker in the mm-hmm. uh, 80s, in terms of saying the focus is really on patriarchy. And what we think of patriarchy isn't um, gender relations. It's this notion of um, the creation of private property and the ownership of it. Right. Right. And so, you know, in this particular case, when we look back in history, we sort of see that there's this period of time in which uh, women were no longer able to own property and primarily because uh, the state or specifically um, aspects of the state, in this case, the church wanted to generate uh, more revenue. And this was the best way, you know, to sort of figure out ways to generate that revenue was through the seizure of this private property. So one, creating private property, then two, controlling who could own private property. So if you take half the population that now can't own it anymore, now there's more available private property for now the church to own. Um, And once now women can no longer own property, that prevents them from being able to have voting you know, decision-making right. power, economic sort of generation off the property that they own, right. all these sorts of things. And, of course, then we, if we get to the present day of having all those sort of years of that sort of culture, then we can get to a space in which all forms of property, including oneself, right. is not in your ownership or control. But what is then given back in return in the 1800s is the uh, cult of domesticity. Even though we took and stripped all your property ownership, rights long, long ago, we're now going to associate your identity with the home um, in terms of values and upkeep and your whole function and everything else. So now you become a defender of the home. The home is something that you don't own. Your partner, your spouse, um, of course, the only acceptable spouse, which is, of course, a man. Right. Right. And so uh, when we have that sort of uh, structure in place, now you have uh, the notion of defense of property in all fronts, right? right. And women. Uh, yeah. And so in terms of settler colonies, you know, everyone had a rifle. You know, everyone's job was to clear the land, right. not just the so-called man, right? right? Everyone um, needed to protect the home because when the man is out working, who is at home? Um, and so in this particular case, you needed to be able to shoot out from right. <laughs> your living room right. window, you know, bandits who were going to come and roam and, you know, uh, steal uh, whatever your cows or horses. So you have this sort of growing sense of the protection of the home, especially tied to gender. So if we get, get to this sort of thing that you're mentioning about the home being unsafe, You've already stripped away a person's ability to own themselves, right? They are property. Yeah, they're not citizens, really. Right, 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 right. And 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 they can't do anything for themselves right. because they're property of someone else. And the home is where the identity is sort of uh, placed or associated with. 
then what ends up happening is that that's why there's this vulnerability because yeah. what's left. But also, you're not going to have legislation on the conduct of inside the home. Oh, it's private. Right, because the minute you do that, then um, not only are you going to infringe on, upon the myth of private property, one's own home is under one's control, but also you begin to revisit the notion that then potentially a whole other half of the population mm-hmm. is now a little bit more important. You need protection rights for people as opposed to protection rights for property. But then on the other end, the other point that you're mentioning is helps with the moral panic, which is now you're also encouraging the same population of people to aid in generating the concerns, the fear. So if you can sort of cultivate this notion of what could happen to you out in this pu- public space, even though you know statistically we know where the violence happens right. the most, there's still the notion of the greater fear being outside the home. Right. Then who is the threat outside of the home? It's not just any and everybody. Yeah. It's a certain sort of right. look and population of people that um, are the, the danger. Uh, one of the books I sort of, you know, cite in the book is uh, Geography of Violence, and they talk about how rapists, they should be also understood as urban redevelopers. <laughs> when the stranger does mm-hmm. commit that one case of uh, sexual assault out in the streets, it reverberates right. louder and more than the cases in the home. And so that one case um, helps to then generate the perceived evidence of how common uh, the concern may be. It's time for a break. This is Bucktown by Smith & Wesson. Stay with us for more of part four of The State Made Visible when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Disposable Cities, part four of The State Made Visible with author and educator Russell Moat. In this segment, we'll look first at state-approved vigilante justice and then talk about the work of three political theorists of state violence. Yeah, well, you already said that, the, I mean, we've said multiple times probably, or you say throughout in the book, the state decides what violence is and who, yeah. who gets to perpetrate violence. Allows it. And yep. this is, you yep. know, a perfect example as well of the state saying violence is okay in the home, not okay by certain people in the streets right. a certain way. Yeah, and so then on the other hand, then the violence that can happen on the street is completely allowable. Right. Even if we know it doesn't happen as often, it is completely allowable mm. to happen. 
So yes, you're completely unsafe because not only do you have then the the, the well, it's the, promoted to happen like, right, exactly. Yeah, right, so, 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 so it's on both right, hands. Right, so it's right, like right. so not only you have your fear of right. what could happen, um, then it's also encouraged. Right. It's got to so, happen for you to have fear of it, no. even if it's only a couple times. No, because right? it'll be a totally different right. thing if uh, if you had law enforcement just stand <laughs> at street corners everywhere. on yeah. at midnight or three a.m. Right. Like, hey, you want to go take a jog? Perfectly <laughs> safe because we are here. For you. And we're not going to rape you. Exactly. This is what we end up getting. And back then to Minneapolis and Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. So, again, when, it, when we talk about cop not being the problem and the state being the designator of what, what's proper violence, uh, throughout the book, you also uh, detail the ways in which people, mm, the, the masses, or, you know, whoever, yeah. act instead of the state and, you know, for the state in the, in the practices of managing a particular population. Yeah. So the state empowers vigilantes to yeah. act. Now, that's a risky thing because right. the more you empower vigilantes, eventually you don't have any control right. over. We're kind of in that space now, right? Yeah, yeah when you yeah. think about January yeah. 6th, yeah, right? right. Um, but yeah, no, and so the vigilantes become official state actors on behalf of the state because similar to, you know, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's point about the Second Amendment and, you know, in her book Loaded, meaning the Second Amendment was the whole sole purpose was to clear the land of indigenous populations. Right. And so, um, now you can deputize everyday people to clear the land. Similarly, vigilantes are then empowered to uh, regulate social order in the city. So that ends up being the case. And in this case with Kyle Rittenhouse and his mom, his mom takes him up like a soccer practice to Man, yeah. uh, entirely other city to help protect property. And that was what he was there for. He, that's what he said, he, right? He, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's not just a defense that the defense is making for him. Right. That's literally what he actually even says very much up front. And that's also what supporters of him, even in law enforcement, were, were saying, mm. you know, as an okay that, yeah, we we should be able to empower people to go and protect property. And so what ends up happening, right? He walks down the street with, you know, assault rifle and fires upon, you know, three right. individuals killing two. We did talk about already in the first episode, uh, Daily the Elder, uh, sort of legitimizing Shoot to kill. vigilantes right. also. Right, right. Yeah. Shoot the kill order. Yeah. So it's no no real difference there. Russell, we've already talked throughout about this, this sort of uh, foundational studies in some sense. We keep talking about the books that you reference. We talk, I mean, this is, again, the case of all uh, literary work. You, you, you read, you, you process through it, you think about other ways to think about things. You come to this with a framework of understanding other people's work as well. And they all feed into a, a hopefully a greater, broader understanding. And there are obviously particular uh, theorists, particular writers and thinkers that you give uh, prominence to in certain sections, right? In what I think is is a really, I think all sections are fascinating, but to me, section or chapter four really sort of exposed a lot of these mechanisms in ways that like they seem like ac a lot of things that seem like accidents or are accidents, but are okay accidents. Like, yeah, right, uh, yeah. It was surprises to me. I was like, oh, the state allows these things to a purpose. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I did think, you know, throughout this particular chapter, you you use the work of Foucault, which is not an unusual thing in American studies or in academia at all, right, right. Uh, is a, obviously a protean thinker 
uh, on many levels. Uh, well, and, I don't really care for him. Yeah, he's a chameleon of sorts, and we have to yeah. be careful with him. Gramsci, who I think you like quite a bit. True. Right? And again, I think a lot of people have really sort of come back to Gramsci yeah. lately. And Stuart Hall, who I think you like a lot. Absolutely. Right? Okay, so, Absolutely. Uh, so we have three thinkers. One, nobody's so hot on. But is ubiquitous in a lot of ways. And uh, Gramsci, Italian thinker, uh, imprisoned, and he died in prison, I believe, yeah, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. And he wrote so. basically Series what matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, from prison. And then Stuart Hall, British. Yeah, long uh, career. Thinker. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you very much. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part four of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on disposable populations, evidenced in Minneapolis and Detroit, but will end in Spanish town Jamaica, and a society formed by common people to bring dignity to the dead. The blues has grown up and the country has not. The country has been ripped off. Ripped off like the Indians. Ripped off like jazz. Okay, so why why these three in this particular context? Yeah, in this particular context, and th- talking about um, losing, almost losing Detroit, which of course we have to acknowledge not only the book but more so the incredible. I never song. heard of the book. Yeah. So before we talk about the song, uh, talk about like I, I was like, wow, there's a book. Yeah. See, I, that's why I feel stupid all the time, man. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, man, there's a book, and I should have read that book already, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't I know that book? <laughs> I know the song. Why don't I know that book? Right. I'm sorry for bringing it up uh, how obvious certain things may be uh, uh, in terms of, um, you know, content. But, you know, yeah. um, you know, the book is by John G. Uh, Fuller in 1975. Mm. Um, and he's writing a book on an earlier um, issue that comes up that is still kind of not really known, even though there's all this, all this attention associated with it, with songs and books mm. and a documentary. and As I just made clear. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and so, that, you know, while we are familiar with the United States, the almost meltdown of Three Mile Island, right. uh, we don't realize, one, all these other meltdowns, but in particular, um, the one outside of De- Detroit. Mm. Uh, and the fact that, you know, in 1966, uh, there was a partial meltdown for a nuclear um, power plant that was only a few miles away from Detroit. Mm. Not to quote me specifically, but I think it's only about 30 miles away. Mm. And I think the blast radius, of course, would be, you know, or the, the radiation radius would be 120 miles. Mm. So clearly this entire city would be erratic. Mm. Uh, 66, so this is, is this, like, where, where is this in the riot space or the sort of upheavals and rebellions of the period? Well, I mean, of course, Detroit has several different ones, right. but this is the year just before the 67, okay. um, the, the, the big, big one. one. Yeah. But then, of course, there's a 68 as well. Okay. So that's kind of also interesting to sort mm-hmm. of note that. And there's also previous right. riots that ha- have happened, right. but there's a clear demarcation that Detroit must not be as important. Mm. So here's this incredible energy source that um, the state wants to have built, but also to grow and duplicate in other locations, but where to put this risky thing. Right. Um, you're not going to put this right next to uh, Congress, <laughs> even though it could power mm-hmm. all of the buildings, and, right. and why not, right? But no, because th- there's a knowledge that this is risky. So right. Place this outside certain cities that are d- deemed disposable mm. because of maybe its population, maybe because of its value, 
right. or a number of other things. So in 66, they already have a certain idea of if it blows up or right. has a, a meltdown, right. this is the area it's likely going to be affected. So they have, all, obviously, so, when they make so these Detroit things, they have already, very clearly yeah. understand what's going to happen if this melts down. And they understand if they put one by Chicago, what's going to happen if it melts down by Chicago? What's going to happen if it melts down by Los Angeles? What's going to happen yeah. if it melts down by New York? So we need to place these things in certain places. So right. if they do melt down, they do kill certain people or lots of people, depending on where they are. But if it's in Clinton, Illinois, where I think there is a power plant, it is, right. it's out in the middle of nowhere for yeah. the most part. Correct. So only the hayseeds are going to die uh, and the cattle and the farm and everything else. <laughs> right. But um, but Detroit, is there are there um, power plants near other cities? There's not really any example that I could think of mm-hmm. in terms of nuclear power plants that are directly proximate to any city of value, which gotcha. is your point. So right. they're all right. sort of next to cities that could be disposable right. in certain certain cases. And so the book is highlighting all of the factors that were that went into the potential meltdown, like what actually happened, right. you know, just before it, the cost-cutting measures that resulted in yeah. the, you know, why there there was a uh, partial meltdown, and then uh, more importantly, though Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson um, pins uh, one of you know the great songs by uh, that that's sung by Gil Scott Heron, which is "We Almost Lost Detroit." You know, beautiful song, right. but of course somber in terms of um, what it's trying to convey. You know, and the important thing I think in the song that the book doesn't really get to is the fact that. This is the loss of people. This is not an issue of the destruction of the environment, right. you know, um, these poor fishes that are going to die, right? No, it's the fact that there are these people who are so disposable that you are willing to take this ultimate devastator um, of space, which is nuclear power, and place it very proximate to their homes. Right. Because uh, there would be no ability if there was a meltdown for people to be saved in terms of radiation sort of spreading. Um, so so that, that's what we almost lost Detroit is about, but that's also what I'm trying to deal with in that particular section of the chapter as an example of violence. Mm-hmm. The not only placing that, you know, building that reactor and, and it's still, um, the, the newest version is still just outside of Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, still to this day, but also the fact that the, the carelessness of it meant that these people were obviously so disposable and this city that they are in was so disposable right. and still is. That's dispose, That's disposing of people and property because you can't go back there for a long time. Right? No, it's, no. It's making a blank zone. No. What no. sacrifice zone? That's uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so a whole city is now a sacrifice zone right, as opposed right. to just an area of right. a city. It's time for another break. This is We Almost Lost Detroit by Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Stay with us for more on Disposable Cities when Interchange returns on WFHB. It stands out on the highway Like a creature from another time It inspires the baby's questions What's that? For their mothers as they ride But no one stopped to think about the babies Or how they would survive And we've almost lost Detroit This time 
ever get over miles from Detroit stands a giant power station it ticks each night as the city sleeps Welcome back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. In this segment of Disposable Cities with Rasul Moat, we'll use the work of three political theorists of state violence to think about the partial meltdown of the Fermi-1 nuclear power plant located about 30 miles outside of Detroit's city center. And we almost lost Detroit this time. So I try to use these three end of um, these sort of three intellectuals, you know, um, to sort of talk it out. Um, Foucault, again, politically, I don't necessarily agree with, but you know, he makes these particular points, especially from his background and dealing with um, psychology, uh, especially in terms of carceral systems. And the whole idea of the panopticon and surveillance and so on, but and he doesn't make this connection, but I do. Um, he ha- talks about these things called epistemes, these moments in histories that sort of um, explain or highlight something. So if we focus in on it, we can sort of see and examine something. Now, I don't have it in the book, but Stuart Hall makes an even better sort of uh, discussion of the same sort of idea and calls them conjunctures. Mm-hmm. And conjunctures are definitely more, you know, clearly sort of articulating the social political relevance of specific moments. Mm-hmm. Like, so when the towers go down and, uh, for 9-11, what does that usher in? What does that conjuncture we bring about? Yes, the end of the importance of the war on drugs, but the beginning of the war on terror and what ends and what begins. Right. There's a rupture there, too, that you can see. You can see the conjuncture at that right, point. I mean, right. you're able to, like, examine it as it's happening, you yeah. know. Yeah. And so, but the reason why I use Foucault is just because of that surveillance sort of space, oh, okay, you know, sure. point, um, even though I think Hall would do a better mm-hmm. job of it. But, you know, again, I'm trying to use a wide range of, right. of resources. And so Hall um, helps to uh, sort of articulate these ways in which we can sort of see the state function, but also people don't realize, um, besides being this incredible, you know, intellectual um Hall also has this, you know, key moments of being an, an important, you know, activist. Hmm. And so he's engaged in uh, nuclear disarmament in the 50s of like 57, 1957. Um, gotcha. yeah, yeah, he's a part of a coalition. Uh, and so because I came across that, I wanted to tie him in of his other intellectual points. He never, as far as I know, he's never written on nuclear uh, disarmament. To any major, dis- you know, degree, but I still wanted to sort of bring some of his viewpoints and I- ideas in. And so, I, you know, I think the idea of one nuclear power—what does that represent? You know, the ability to sort of to harness this power and produce it, you know, for not just energy but also destruction. But all of them bring in this way to think about that. This moment also tells us how the state will use and situate people. Um, for the sake of its own ends. So they were willing to cultivate this risky power, uh, knowing that it could do serious damage 
but they know that at the end, at the end of the day that either if nothing happens they they'll still have the benefits of that power or if something does happen they'll also be written you know rid of the people who are problematic you open this um nuclear situation with this sort of understanding of power and like the configuration and again we um, i don't i'm going to hopefully you know disentangle the two terms power uh, as in power generation uh, yeah, electricity yeah, 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 and yeah. power in in the state apparatus or who is con- in charge of things controlling mm-hmm. our lives and the idea that um, it's funny because it's the idea of knowledge as power is exposed here too right which is a, yeah, yeah. an interesting thing Foucault contending that they're necessary together right you, mm-hmm. you can't have power without knowledge and knowledge is power in a lot of ways. It's kind of, you know, we make it a, it's, you know, like a schoolhouse rock thing to say knowledge is power, right? Right, right. Um, but of course, Foucault won't tell us what to do with that, you know, <laughs> right, so. Right, uh, right. But, but, but Gramsci will, right? right? Yeah, right. exactly. And so the idea that this is a physical manifestation of the hegemonic space, right? right? So being able to make a decision of what to construct in a place, knowing of its sheer ability to also destroy that's a fullest expression of uh, hegemony mm-hmm. right you know not just being a cultural influencer and not just being a military power but also being a thing that can dictate life or death well it is interesting to think about it as a as a blank space uh, in in terms of historical knowledge right mm-hmm. as you know it already th- like when you when i was reading this and i was like oh i didn't know that but then, um, you know, then Three Mile Island, I, of course, knew because, again, it happened when I was uh, uh, growing up. Yeah, Like, it was in the 80s or right, whatever, exactly, right? So, yeah. so that's understandable. Like, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I was born in 68. So, 66 is something that I have to learn about historically, yeah, right? Yeah. So, when Three Mile Island happened, I should have learned about Detroit. Correct. Right. And and it should have been a part of our discussion yeah. that this is nuclear power. This has happened before. And then you can now on Wikipedia or anywhere else go and see the history of of like meltdown occurrences or partial meltdowns. <laughs> right. or, it's a list. Or, yeah, it's a very long <laughs> list of problems. They're almost all military, interestingly. Correct. Also. Yes. Right. But this is the again, these are things we just kind of put it to the side. You know that this is why the power exists. It's military for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you very much. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part four of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on disposable populations, evidenced in Minneapolis and Detroit, but will end in Spanish town Jamaica and a society formed by common people to bring dignity to the dead. The blues has grown up and the country has not. The country has been ripped off, ripped off like the Indians. You do have uh, from that book some uh, some uh, trying to understand the numbers that would be lost or the the amount of people that would die. I think this guy uh, Fuller was his name. Yeah, asserts that something like 133,000 people would have died in the D- Detroit area following a class one emergency. And then people immediately rebutted it, right? Like the industry, I s- assume, or a- a- yeah. a- academics in the industry uh, tried to rebut it as well. Um, well. Well, yeah, well, academics officially working for the sure, federal government. Sure, and, sure. And, and then I think there was a rebuttal of that rebuttal, right. which was from the sort of, I think, uh, association of nuclear physicists. But what you pointed out too, is just that the Detroit is a black city primarily. And it's one thing that, again, is essential always. It's not to say uh, power hates black people. It's to say black people have been 
constructed to be disposable in the state's imaginary and in the imaginary of the white people who are in charge of all the wealth and money and then all the white people that aren't. Black people, Latinx, you know, et cetera, are disposable. The manifestation of black people allows for disposability to exist as a function. Right, right, okay. And carefully stated. Yeah, you yeah. know, so it's a way yeah. in which you create the black. Right, right. You right. know, now you can now dispose right. in general because you created right. the black. Right. Even though everybody's attention will only be on the times in which you're going to dispose of the black. Like, so when I say black people are disposable out loud, I don't mean that, you know, but how we talk about things is important also. It's yeah. kind of a. Right. Uh, and it, it's actually a point McCole made to, mm. to, to me multiple times, uh, not even in during in, during the show, just in email or when chatting yeah. about things like, yeah. no, you really shouldn't say things that way <laughs> right. uh, because it's important, right? Yeah. Like if you think about calling slaves, slaves, she, this is her primary argument yeah, yeah. with at the time, you know, slaves aren't, they're enslaved people, right. they're not yeah. slaves, yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. their identity, it's right. not who they are, it's yeah. not what they are, you know. I mean, that's important and, and we forget about it. It's easy to, again sort of fall into the classifications and categories that are in the back of your head. Yeah, and it's not just about it being correct in terms of terminology, but it also is a way in which terminology is, has been created that hides its function, right? So right. saying enslavement as opposed to slave allows us to remind ourselves that this was a functionary right, right. thing, like this was a thing that was produced. This wasn't just an individual happenstance thing, like you know, one slave, one owner, and that's how this entire thing, you know, grew was all these individuals found themselves on in one of those two identities. So I like again, uh, and I'll point this out because uh, we've talked about it as a part of the book's structure, right? So uh, on page two or three, you've got a picture of the Detroit Wall, a concrete wall one half mile long, that was. Uh, erected to separate the quote unquote Negro section from a new suburban housing development. That's still there, or do you know? Yeah, it's still there. Oh, well, oh, well, parts of it, yeah, yeah, still there. Mm. And same thing in Miami. Um, many mm. of the sort of physical wall structures are still present, even though it's hidden right. because, you know, maybe there's public art placed onto it. Oh, yeah. All right. Or a tree is now next to it or whatever else. But, mm. you know, some of these physical structures are still present in most cities. Well, another thing that's pointed out, I think, in this chapter, too, is that uh, a lot of times um, the waste from nuclear power pr- plants are uh, and uh, they're tried to be put onto native uh, yeah. reservation, reservation right. land yeah. to like hundreds of proposals and policies, promo- you know, every year yeah. to what to do with the waste. Yeah, everybody talks about the energy that's produced, but nobody realizes yeah. that this thing actually produces right. waste. Yeah. You know, there's this byproduct that has to then, that, that can't be used for anything else. So it's disposed in one of the places that they dispose it a lot, oftentimes are, you know, indigenous reservations. Right. Because, you know, what's also interesting is that not only was is that a quote-unquote disposable population that has already been disposed of. Several times. The, the land that it's on it's is disposable. barren and disposed. <laughs> like, here's the reservation land we've given you that's terrible and awful. And thank, you got to thank God for the U.S. because we could have already wiped out every. Well, wait, wait, we already did wipe out everybody. Like six of you left. Or, you know, right, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, so, yeah. And then we're, now we're going to put this stuff under here because you don't count anyway because you don't really exist there. Right, and you, you know. can't challenge. It's time for our final break. This is A Toast to the People, another from Gil Scott Heron. Stay with us for more with Rasul Mowat and part four of The State Made Visible when Interchange returns. 
Interchange. For our final segment of Disposable Cities, part four of the state made visible, we travel to Spanish town, Jamaica, in search of the possibility of human dignity and dissent inside the city. I like how you end, again, with a picture of yourself, because you started pretty much with a picture of yourself. Right. Without uh, talking about myself. Yes, but but you do uh, you do make uh, I think in a different chapter and it may have been three or four you also talk about the construction of identity yeah. using yourself because you have an identity that we can talk about in categorical terms right you yeah. are uh, a, a black man who is from a certain place Jamaica your 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 background is uh, or your family is from Jamaica and so you're able to think think about your identity or you're actually pr- encouraged to think about your identity in those particular ways, which is important too, again, because this is how you're allowed to think about anything really, Mm -hmm. but also how you can think about belonging and dissenting. Yeah. And they're both limited and structured already within those terminologies and those places, right? Correct. Do you you want to say anything more about that? Well, it's this idea that these are still territories, and even if they're our former territory, they're still a territory. They're not land or new land. Right. So the identity is still associated with either the previous ownership of the territory or with the new ownership of the territory. And even if the new ownership is a part of the independent government, they're still occupying the same exact space. Right. So they're not coming up with a new, completely new sort of um, definition of themselves. They're not changing the name of the space in any regard. So that creates the limit. What does it matter to be or to say, I mean, if you say you're African-American slash Jamaican, uh, does that matter? I mean, so in a sense, you were trying to disavow, yeah. not not disavow who you are necessarily, right, right, but right. To, to disavow these terminologies or the ways in which these are categorized or allowed to be um, talked about and then – uh, even praised and, and supported, right? To to be in support of your heritage and things of this nature. This is encouraged, but it serves. Yeah, yeah. It, it ties us, right? You know, to the constructs that the state has given us, right? right. right? Um, and so, even territory itself. Mm-hmm. And Jamaica and, is a name. That's of right. A place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not an indigenous name, right? right? Like because. Right. You know, there's Jamaica, Queens, right. oh, sure. and there's Jamaica Street and think Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so, right. and then, and all the, both of those are before Jamaica, the island. Mm. Mm. I didn't know that. 
so while we can sort of have this idea, notion that it's something different or new, but no, it's still part of that same structure. This is no different than even um, being tied to sports teams or, right. you know, myself from Chicago, right? Uh, South side, West side is, or <laughs> and North side are so important right. as, as constructs. But the thing is, is that the more we sort of stay with that those identities, even if they're a part of our own reimaginations, we're still fixed within the spaces that have um, been constructed for us. Right. So it's not that not only we're calling ourselves something completely different or we're choosing to completely redefine the ways in which we perceive of land or we ourselves are taking on territory right. uh, in, our, in our own control. Until that sort of happens, we're, we're always going to still be operating in the space that the state has sort right. of provided right. for us. You do come back to this in the conclusion, right? The idea of being a subject and trying to undo that subjectivization um, yeah, yeah. In, in the work of this book even, right? In, in the work of what you do as well, – you, you do it as a career, but you do it as a person mm. as much as anything else, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, to conclude, <laughs> Russell, you are – you do give us a picture of yourself in Jamaica. Yes. Yeah. Spanish town. Yeah. And it is uh, a picture of uh, – like it's a, an important family picture yeah. too, right? Yeah. So, it, so you do have to help, I think, people understand how these two pictures – that are family pictures that have meaning to you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How they are not important in w- certain ways. I mean, they're important to you personally, right? Yeah, right, right. But the, the things that they're, how are they like not given the right meanings? Or, yeah. you know, how are they, uh, what are the right meanings to those things? What are, the, what are the, and then you've pointed this out throughout and many Marxist thinkers in particular, but the what is the materialism? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the materialist importance of these situations for a person uh, identified in a time and a place? So these things have meaning and the space has meaning. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, in one regards, we know that people, one will identify more with these sort of personal narratives. And I have noticed some people who have mentioned that they really appreciate the the personal narrative in a book. Right. And that's, you know, that's great, but that's also a weird sort of conversation, at least for me to mm-hmm. start with, because the book is so much not sure. about that, right. you know, right. almost utterly not about that. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's the hook to bring you in right. for this buffet of something else. Right. And so what, the first, of course, image is, you know, still of myself, my brother, and my mother, right. you know, at a protest. And instead of it being a story about my upbringing or my mother's political background, it's instead about the protests right. that happened in that particular moment and the history of the building and the neighborhood area that the people in the image are protesting mm-hmm. and the fact that it's uh, this thing that's endemic of so many other spaces, both in terms of people trying to push up against the state and whether they fail or succeed, the ability just to do something different, but also the the idea that the state is always functioning and regardless of uh, who. And so this space has this long history, but this long, consistent history um, in relationship to the city overall. Thank you very much. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part four of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on disposable populations, evidenced in Minneapolis and Detroit, but will end in Spanish Town, Jamaica, and a society formed by common people to bring dignity to the dead. The blues 
Jesus has grown up and the country has not. The country has been ripped off. Ripped off like the Indians. Ripped off like jazz. But then this final image is very similar in the, in the sense that even though, yes, it's myself and it's a, I'm, I'm standing next to a bust of my great-grandfather, instead it's, it's the idea that one, I'm in a former colony, um, and then right. two, um, you know, it's the work of my great-grandfather that then becomes the thing to actually highlight, which was um, this notion of a burial scheme. You know, the fact that all these laborers are so cheap that not only were they cheap in their life, but they're cheap in their death. And so they weren't paid enough to have a proper burial. So oftentimes pits would be dug up and mm -hmm. their bodies would just be dumped and lime would be sprinkled onto it. And um, so my great grandfather sort of thought about ways in which laborers could pull together and come up with a uh, scheme, basically to raise money and the pot of money then can go towards proper burials for all people, even if they have a big family, a small family. Again, this is you know inclusive of dressing the body, right? Um, uh, the service, the the gravestone, and the burial itself. Right. Then it spreads like wildfire throughout the country of Jamaica. Mm. So chapters are in different cities, and then it goes to other West Indian locations. So Belize, Trinidad, even down to Panama. Um, there were Jamaican burial scheme chapters. Was it already expensive to be buried? Like uh, the idea that it's a cost to be buried or who's, is that a state function as well in those places where yeah, you have to was, be buried in a certain place in a certain way? Yeah, it was completely a state function. But then, yeah, the costs were excessive. But the costs were excessive not just because the costs were excessive, but the costs were excessive because the pay was also so, course, so, sure, so horrible, sure, right? right? And yeah. so people were not able, you know, so you would have bodies just in the home Right. Uh, or people would just try to dig up space in their backyard. It's like it's offensive to think about. I mean, when you talk about the state uh, abandoning oh, um, yeah. anything, you know, it, this is a obvious, you know, example of abandoning people. Mm -hmm. Almost any people. Well, now we've, you turn it into a capitalist, um, you know, commercial ind industry for the most part, yeah. you know, burial and and uh, being buried, but. Another example of where certain people can be buried at what cost, yeah, and yeah. you know, and and so you know, and my great grandfather sort of creates this mm -hmm. uh, burial scheme. Um, I think at this particular moment, it's now you know 120 years. It's still operating, so it, it it's been going on for years. Um, I happened to be able to go to the hundredth anniversary, mm -hmm. so there were, you know, there were these people who were extremely old who have been a part of contributing to the wow. pot of money for 80 years. Right. Or whatever amount of time they've been sort of contributing right. for decades. But wow. the idea also in that story is to have the audacity to do something other than what you're expected to do. Right. Right. Because um, what we're expected to do is mind our own business. <laughs> right. right. And in this case, my great grandfather and so many other people's great grandfathers right. and great grandmothers and so on have chosen to do something um, right. other than what's expected to do. Um, since the state doesn't care, at least. Yeah. You will, yeah. right? And yeah. and how, right? Are you going to feed children? Are you going to provide senior care? Are yeah. you going to, in this particular case, uh, provide um, respect and dignity for the body and the family of the deceased? Right. It's not a surprise. I mean, the state murders people left and right. Yeah. And that's what it does. Right. Um, like I said, it was an offense, and it is. But to imagine the state doing anything different would yeah. almost be the strange thing. Right. Right? The, the fact that this labor is so important to extract and the fact that 
this dissenting labor is so important to suppress to death, yeah, right. you know, to snuff out. But yet there could be no importance in terms of at least right. burying the body. Right? And, but no, um, there, there was no regard. That's our show. We'll close with Louis Armstrong. This is Wrap Your Troubles in a Dream. And as in the past, Rasul Mowat selected our music today. And thanks to Rasul Mowat for exposing the state that stands between us, that literally composes and constructs our being and thinking, most visibly in our cities. It's with this four-part book of interchange that I bring my primary role as producer and host of WFHB's Interchange to a close. I started doing this because I found that when I listened to podcasts, a really complex issue would be addressed from an angle that closed discussion. I wanted to undo all the assertions and assumptions in them, but the show was produced on the air in your headphones, and that was that. The radio show or podcast is so intimate that it can feel like a good friend is making the world more intelligible to you, and I felt like this was a kind of fraud. So with zero experience, I attended a volunteer orientation at WFHB and within weeks was producing my own show. That was just lucky timing. And that led to my becoming a part of Interchange. Thank you, WFHB. I will be honest, though, it has been both rewarding and frustrating. It's a one-way medium, and I can probably count on my two hands how many times I've had discussions about the show with anyone other than a guest, family member, or close friend. I have put more time, more thought, more struggle, more stress, more creativity into the show than anything else, probably, in my entire life. And to be sure, I have gained so much from it. But I wanted to feel that I was sharing that journey, and that part has eluded me. Still, I feel strongly that one must give without expectation, and these feelings expose an expectation. I do also want to send my love out into the universe to Rob Schoon a friend who died almost three years ago to the day, at the age of 33. Rob Schoon shared this vision and this journey as an assistant producer on Interchange. His great gift to me was the simple act of joining me. My favorite thing that Rob did, if we were in the engineering booth listening to the show and it came to a music break where his cut made the song and the show seem made for each other, I would turn to him to praise his work and find him staring at me with a huge grin on his face. It was a wonderful smile, and I miss it. Here's to you, Rob. Thank you. I'm Doug Storm. I've been the producer of Interchange since August 2013. In that time, our executive producers have been Allison Bektesh, Joe Crawford, Wes Martin, and Cade Young. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.